1: On this week's New Station podcast, I'm back and I'm joined by Anush and Alva to discuss Leila Moran's attempt to steal Keir Starmer's clothes, a new report on Labour's 2019 defeat, and we you ask us whether or not Opposition Day debates are any good?
2: So Stephen, welcome back. Did you have a nice time off? I know you had a little little hiatus where you started writing about Whitehall reform, but you know, that's a holiday.
1: <laughs> I did, yes. That was a uh, yeah. It was just, it was a slightly strange thing because obviously it happened, and I kind of thought like, oh, you know, so I made the mistake of going, oh, I'll just tweet the article I wrote on this last time, and then of course various people phoned me about it, and I thought, oh, I probably should talk about some of the things that these people are saying. But other than my holiday being interrupted by Diffid being merged into the FCO, or rather the announcement happening, it was good. It was very restful. I went for lots of walks. I. Had lots of ice cream. I joined lots of queues for ice cream. Yeah, it was good.
2: How are those teens getting along who are falling in love on on your estate? I keep thinking about them.
1: (laughs) The teens, yeah. I mean, so like, yeah, their their burgeoning love story (laughs) continues. They are, yeah, gradually. The looming divide isn't in the place where they like stand and flirt with each other. There's like a fence broadly.
2: (laughs) Very sensible.
1: And obviously at first they were divided by two metres. They're now observing one meter plus in the Mm. new buzz phrase.
0: (laughs) Visionary. But
1: sooner or later, the fence is going to become a problem. And I am—I both desperately want them to be able to return to school because it's such an important time for them. But I am deeply concerned that they will return to school before the question of what they're going to do when they finally get close enough that the fence is all (laughs) is between them (laughs) is
2: the chastity fence.
1: Yeah, the chastity railing. Yeah.
2: And you're in at the deep end now, now that you're back, because you're actually in Parliament today, aren't you?
1: I am. I'm well, back. What's it
2: like there? Is it, is it weird?
1: It is, it's very weird. I mean, so I'm not sure if I'm going to keep on doing it, but I'm going to kind of do this for a couple of days this week, because as I think I've discussed before, one of the things I kind of tend to do, particularly on the day before columns, is just like walk around the estate and hopefully you kind of bump into people. Obviously, the weird thing is, is now you're prohibited by the state from bumping into people. So that's a bit weird. It's very quiet. I'm the only person in room 12, which is my room in the parliamentary press gallery. So it feels very ghostly. Uh, Usually it's full of the Politico people and some of the regionals and the Politics UK lads and Business Insider. But instead, it's just me, myself and I. But yeah, it's, it's weird because it does feel kind of very ghostly. But it is useful because although you can have lots of planned conversations, it is useful to be able to have spontaneous ones. And I had a spontaneous shout with an MP earlier. They saw me. I saw them. We yelled at each other over a two
0: meter distance. Do you find it makes their gossip less good because they have to shout it over a two meter distance rather than confide it or in a whisper over a coffee?
1: I think yeah. I think it probably is does does affect the quality of it, right? In the, I mean, I think about there was a period before shutdown when I wrote that piece about you know how put out lots of men in the Tory men in twenty fifteen into equal. And it felt whenever I'd bump into a man from the 2015 intake, they would like look both ways and be like, I'm pretty put out too. Uh, really? Obviously, that's not going to happen now. Yeah, it's useful, I think, at least as a way of kind of refreshing who you talk to. And one of the weird things in lockdown is I realize is that whether or not I talk to MPs has been slightly dependent on whether or not I'm likely to talk to that MP about other things, be it, you know, politics or books or art or whatever. And it's it's good to come out and, you know, broaden my source pool beyond other people who are into Arsenal. So, so yeah, here I am in the ghost ship.
2: And when you're off, there was a report released by Labour Together, a review of Labour's general election performance and campaign, but also a sort of a deeper look into what Labour's, Labour's problem is and how it can get itself back into a position to gain power. And Alva, you wrote a really good analysis of the report. So what were your main takeaways from it?
0: Thank you. Yeah, I loved this report. I thought it was just (laughs) so interesting. I mean, I thought the Lib Dem election review was a good read. And then this one came along and just blew it out of the water. Yeah. So I, as you say, focused on what it says about what will come next, because there was a lot of focus in the coverage on what it said about like Labour's organizational problems under Corbyn, which are well documented. But you know, this quote about a dysfunctional and toxic culture was getting a lot of traction, whereas I thought it was just genuinely more interesting to look at the, the very detailed conclusions that the report reached. They spoke to 11,000 Labour members and took contributions from Labour groups like across the, the spectrum from Momentum to Progress. As well as conducting some really detailed focus groups, they have a, a YouTube video of the focus group. They like locked, you know, a group of remainers from London and a group of people from Yorkshire who abandoned Labour in 2019 in a room together for a day to come up with a policy program for their dream party and looked at all of the the stumbling blocks for. For Labour in coming up with a, um, a cohesive voter coalition again, and just that their findings are really, really interesting because of all of that kind of anecdotal evidence that they were draw, drawing on, as well as like the very, very detailed polling and focus grouping. I think the diagnosis of, of Labour's problem and the sort of the wider description of the British electorate is really, really interesting in just how how starkly it lays out that basically. The polling that they use divides the British electorate into 14 different groups, which I won't run through. It basically works out that in 2019, Labour's core vote were the three most liberal groups in the British electorate. Obviously, some like people don't perfectly fit into these groups and some other people will have voted Labour, but that, that constitutes Labour's core vote. But that only represents about 21% of the electorate. And so this group is really, really sharply divided from the rest of the British electorate on issues of crime and patriotism and immigration. And they they measure it in a really interesting way where it's, you know, it's about whether you agree with the statement, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or like how likely you are to say that you're proud to be British, which in those three most liberal groups people were like very unlikely to agree with, in really, really stark contrast to the to the rest of the British electorate. And so the report kind of says that the 2019 election exacerbated this divide that because of the specific conditions of that election, but that it was happening anyway and it was happening for decades. And so Labour will need to find a way at the next election of pulling together a very diverse coalition of voters again and like the main finding is that those voters may not agree on cultural issues but actually there's an unexpectedly strong consensus on economic issues so there's so much interesting polling in in the report and it's really really long but like things that jumped out were things about how you know Older Brexiteers are very likely to support an increase in the minimum wage. There's really strong support for higher rates of corporation tax, things like that, that like actually there's a there's a possibility of a path forward where Labour focuses on the economy and like the areas of economic consensus while trying to kind of dodge those trickier cultural issues. And the report also found that, that like that kind of has to be the way, even though it's really difficult and very ambitious and could... I mean, I think I mean, we'll discuss this after, but like there are, I think there are several like potential issues with it, but that the report finds that that's basically the only way, this like this this economic message that they can unite people around with a big patriotic story of Britishness and communities, but mainly focused on the economics and avoiding the cultural stuff because what they found was that if they simply take a tougher stance on crime or a tougher stance on immigration that that won't do for them either because they would just improve on their 2019 performance, but they wouldn't do better than 2017. So those are the main findings of the report. In terms of what we can expect from the party going forward, I think it's really very likely that Starmer will take all of those findings on board. And I argue in the piece that you can already see him and the wider labour movement trying to, to implement that approach. Mm, thanks for for summing it up, and also I do suggest that listeners
2: read your your great piece on it on the site. My two reflections from the report were mainly that I was glad that although it's very damning of the campaign that was run under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership in twenty nineteen that it didn't put everything at his door as some labor commentators and activists were doing after the defeat because it does say that these problems did do stretch back over the last two decades and Lucy Powell, who obviously knows a thing or two about Labour defeats was you know was was out saying that on the airwaves when the report was released and and they are being very upfront I think about the fact that you can't just pin fixing the party on a change of leader which is very seductive because it makes it sound sort of easy and like the past however many years were a blip but it obviously isn't the root cause of Labour's problems and the second point that I'd I'd make when I when I read the report was it's all very well and good wanting to unite your sort of constantly fraying coalition of voters around the economic outlooks that they have in common. But how do you do that? I I don't know this, but how do you do that when the Conservative Party's rhetoric, which we don't really know how that's going to change because of the way that they have to recover the economy after coronavirus, they might have a completely different message. Who knows? If they're talking about public spending and borrowing and all of the things that they focused on in in their general election campaign, at least rhetorically, how does Labour separate themselves from that new Conservative Party um, kind of brand? Um, and so that would, for me, if I were Keir Starmer, that would be my my biggest fear, because it's all very well diagnosing your problem. But how do you make yourself look different, other than on cultural issues from the Conservative Party, if they're kind of waxing lyrical about the same sort of financial and economic programme that that you're into? And also, these kind of reports do make you vulnerable to other parties. So we've had Leila Moran warning Keir Starmer that if she becomes Lib Dem leader, then he should be worried. Stephen, what did you think about her coming out and saying that?
1: Well, it's hard to assess, right? Because to what extent is Leila Moran's positioning in the Lib Dem leadership election about where she perceives 50% of the vote plus one in the Lib Dem leadership to be? And what extent is it about where she actually perceives the Liberal Democrats' growth opportunities to be? because there is a sizable, perhaps it's not a majority, but there's a sizable group of people who will vote in the Lib Dem leadership election who like the sound of, of that, right? Who basically do broadly want to go back to the kind of Charlie Kennedy era of, you know, there are 60 MPs, they're running to the left of Labour on some issues. It's cool to vote Lib Dem, to use that phrase. Now, I have a number of doubts about that as an approach, personally. The first, and I think the most important one, is then if you look at... Now, obviously, at the moment, Keir Starmer is, is popular with most people, but his core constituency are Labour Liberal Democrat considerers, right? They are people who either voted for the Lib Dems in the 2019 Euros and came back to Labour in 2017, or people who voted for the Lib Dems in the 2019 Euros and kept up the habit, or people who switched from Labour to the Lib Dems in 2017. So I just think any approach to how the Lib Dems grow... That starts with this idea that they can have an antagonistic relationship with Keir Starmer. I would just make me incredibly nervous were I a Liberal Democrat. And that's before you get into the question of is the way that you get in, in all of their target seats, the Labour vote is, has been squeezed. Right. There are a handful of places, Finchley and Golders Green is one, Wimbledon is the other, in which there is a sizable Labour vote left. That was partly because those were seats in which the Lib Dems had, had, came from a very long way back to be second. Now, it feels to me unlikely that the Lib Dems will not have a better squeeze message in those constituencies next time, particularly if, in the case of Finchley and Golders-Green, they are able to have Luciana Berger as their candidate again. But in most of those seats, the Labour vote has, is lower than it was in those seats than it was in 2010. So I, I'm just not convinced that there are there is more Labour vote to gain in their targets, I I broadly think, right, in terms of their message to how they get Labour voters, it is broadly going to be that the way you vote for Keir Starmer in St Albans, which they hold, but it's a very volatile seat, so they're going to have to fight a fairly tough defensive campaign, is to vote for the Lib Dems. And the way that you vote for Keir Starmer in Winchester is to vote for the Lib Dems. And then they are going to need a specific recruitment message to con Lib considerers. And although I think you can do a lot of that with a kind of pretty firmly centre left polit- political position, because that is, you know, the, I don't know if anyone else remembers the Groundhog Day advert they did in twenty in the run up mm-hmm. to twenty seventeen. Yeah. Yeah. Where like, yeah, you know, it's like someone in a nice house, and they keep hearing terrible news about the world. Right. Actually, their their core constituency in terms of their target market is someone who like has a nice house, is desperately worried about like the state of the world, and who whose children will not be able to get on the housing ladder until their parents die, right? You know, like, they're like that level of of affluent and socially concerned, right? So they can't just give their kids cash to buy a house, but they are homeowners themselves. And so I think you can obviously pull over those voters with a centre-leftish position. But talking up your the fact you would provide free water and energy. I'm just I'm just not convinced there are enough votes in that bit of the Venn diagram. I'm just dubious about it. And that is my general set, set of kind of concerns about Leila Moran's pitch thus far.
0: I think it's interesting as well how the Leila Moran pitch and the findings of that Labour report interact with each other basically because I mean I think that the big question in terms of where Labour go next is like if if they're going to take on board that conclusion from the report which is basically like being tougher on crime or tougher on, on immigration as a strategy in itself to win back Red Wall voters won't work we have to do this big bold Economic consensus pitch that tells a story about Britishness and families, patriotism, and so on. If they go with that approach, I think that there's still like, there are still question marks around this idea that they're going to be bridging cultural divides and like what exactly that will mean in practice. And like what I argued in that piece was that we can kind of see it already in that Keir Starmer will, for example, you know, support the Black Lives Matter movement, say that Black Lives Matter you know take the knee and so on but he won't celebrate the toppling of a statue in that manner like with in, in the situation with the edward colston one as a way of sort of nodding to the more law and order focused voters and target voters in that very very broad electoral coalition but i think that like the report doesn't really spell out to what extent bridging cultural divides will mean being a little bit tougher on law and order and not being quite so progressive on every issue in order to keep the coalition together and or to what extent it will mean being prepared to to have difficult conversations and bring voters towards you it'll probably be a mixture of both but I think that in practice it makes Leila Moran's pitch a more interesting one in that like again, with the example of the statue, she, you know, was unequivocally celebrating the toppling of the Edward Colston statue, and she didn't have a problem with the way that amounted to criminal damage, but she just wasn't very concerned. And there's a whole chunk of Labour voters and Labour supporters who do agree with her on that. And so I think that if Labour's diagnosis of its problem is that it has this very liberal core at the moment, and it's, he's got to keep them and not you know, not take them for granted while also reaching out for new voters to bring red wall voters back in. I think that it means that like the presence of, of a Liberal Democrat Party that's prepared to make a bid for those liberal voters is is even more tricky. That like we're already seeing Leila Moran positioning herself as more radical than Keir Starmer on those things. I mean, there's a group in in the Labour report described as young insta-progressives. And I think that actually, in practice, it would be really hard for the Liberal Democrats to, to win substantial numbers of those people, given the record of the coalition and other things. It'd be really hard to suddenly win them back unless it's a Lib Dem Tory marginal. But I still just think it's interesting that it's the way the Labour envisaged by that report and the Liberal Democrats as envisaged by Leila Moran sort of interact with each other. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's odd because the thing I think is fascinating about some of the reaction to Keir saying that he thought it was right and the statue should come down, but wrong that it came down in the way it did, is one, of course, in some ways that was an issue with like the difficulty turned all the way down to casual in that only 13% of people... Thornton, the statue should have come down in the way than it did. You can fairly say, well, look, if you're glad it's come down, but you'd rather it had come down in other means. How opposed to the action are you really? But broadly, the politics of that was quite easy. What I thought was fascinating is that when Corbyn was asked about them renaming the Coulston Hall in 2018, he said we shouldn't erase the past, a position which put him to the right on this issue of Sajid Javid. And broadly, all of the people who are going, oh, oh, this is terrible. This is a touchstone issue, didn't mind when Corbyn did that. And broadly, the reason why people think this is a shift is because of their personal perceptions of the two, or in some cases, three leaders involved. But I think, yeah, the the thing I thought was interesting about the report, and you can kind of see how that is broadly the analysis that Keir Starmer has, right? In that he is opting to swerve most cultural hot, hot button issues and to focus on competence, right? You could see that with his reaction to the Diffid merger, where he's like, oh, this is a distraction, where it's basically like area opposition leader wants to go back to his preferred dividing line, which, you know, is fine, that's the practice of politics. But the thing is, is that I can just about conceive of a possibility that there are enough voters who are moved by that issue to vote Lib Dem to complicate Labour's life in liberal conservative marginals. But there aren't enough of them to even make Islington South a marginal again or to retake Hornsey and Wood Green. The problem that that group of voters have is that first-past-the-post concentrates them in. And it's why I think some of the stuff about, like, you know, has Labour lost these towns because of demographic change? Has they, they lost the town because of, of changing patterns by voters? It doesn't really matter in an odd way. You've still got to find a way to win those seats to form a government. But, yeah, they, they do interact in an interesting way. I just don't think the sums add up from a Lib Dem perspective.
2: Enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist. And now it's time for a section we like to call "You Ask Us."
1: You ask us.
2: You've been away so long, Stephen. You've
1: gotten how to completely missed the cue. Sorry. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've got an interesting question here. Do opposition days hold any value, and how do you think Keir Starmer should best approach them? So, for listeners who don't know, there are twenty opposition day debates given to opposition parties in one parliamentary session. Seventeen of those go to the Labour Party and then the other three go to the second biggest party. And usually, you know, in recent years, I think since Theresa May's minority, the government has essentially ignored opposition day debates, haven't they? I don't know if that's still happening, but um usually they pass with the government abstaining these days.
1: Because yeah, because they have no binding force unless you can find some clever parliamentary machinery to make them so the government can simply avoid them by just being like fine guys you can pass what you like <laughs> the issue becomes when you can find an issue that M- conservative MPs feel they have to vote for right this is why yeah, you know, to hark back to to the first part of this pod I suspect that if Layla Moran does become Lib Dem leader her position in Parliament will often be quite right-wing in inverted commas because in terms of making a splash in Parliament, they will find issues that Lib Dems agree on that they can pull 40 Tories over. So it'll be stuff like homeless veterans, right? So I think we had a really good example of how to use an opposition day debate well last week with the Marcus Rashford thing, right? Where Labour had a long-planned opposition day debate on free school meals. An issue which they they knew, and the the shadow education secretary, uh, the leader of the opposition, had brought it up at PMQs. You'd had Labour MPs like Sharon Hodgson who'd been campaigning on it for a long time, so they knew that they had like some political joy to be got out of this thing. And they basically, when they scheduled it, thought, well, we'll do this, and hopefully we'll be able to, yeah, and, and it'll be embarrassing for some Tory MPs to be on the record on it one way or the other. So maybe we can like make some difficulty Mm,
2: mm. and then
1: Marcus Rashford arrives and then suddenly your opposition day debate has gone from being something which may cause the government some difficulty to a thing that is sufficiently painful that they have to U-turn before your opposition day debate. Now, of course, you can't guarantee that that will happen, but I kind of think that's like the model for how you do it, right? You pick something you've campaigned on a lot that you think you can do some damage on and you hope that events or the mailbag of MPs in marginal seats or eloquent footballer with a large media following can help push that issue.
2: Mm. And they're often on issues that, that are sort of the kind of issues that the government wants to avoid. So, you know... There's been ones on Grenfell, on the Universal Credit rollout, on NHS privatisation, treatment of refugees. These kind of issues that, of course, you know, are close to the heart of many people in the Labour Party, but also, you know, will relate to some kind of recent scandal or or policy flaw that has a, a human impact that is intended to kind of embarrass the government. And that's a double edged sword because, of course, if you if you bring one of these one of these debates into Parliament, then you're regular person who's following politics will will see that the labor party is pushing on these issues and the conservative party is either ignoring it or failed to turn up or haven't been approaching it with the same kind of zeal as the labor party but on on the other end edge of the sword is is of course that conservative MPs have before described these kind of debates to me as virtue signaling because they don't they don't often because they're not binding they don't often achieve that much material gain and so that's you know partly a reason for ignoring them, but also they can be disparaged by the government for wasting time or choosing to to talk about it in the House rather than than do anything more constructive. And so I think there's a little bit of a tension there as to how useful they can be. But of course, the, the Labour Party has, and hopefully they could do this in the future, they have used it effectively. So you can do sort of tricks on your opposition day debates to 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 make something binding i think you can order the release of papers i think it's called a motion for a return and i think they successfully managed to get the government to agree to release its, some internal government documents on on their on their analyses of brexit in 2017 although i don't think that eventually came to anything particularly constructive but yeah you i mean keir starmer is someone who he's a lawyer he knows the way to use Parliament, particularly from his Brexit shadow Brexit secretary days, to use the sort of tricks in the parliamentary handbook to try and embarrass the government or force them into a position of, of answering for a policy that they don't want to be drawn on.
1: The interesting question I have, one of the things that, that, that Rashford's presence did is it... Obviously, the U-turn was painful and embarrassing for the government because they've made so many. Mm. And even though in general, I think people don't care about U-turns, people do care about the competence cue of we've U-turned on this, we've U-turned on that, we've U-turned on the app and we've U-turned on the little dog too. But it was less painful because you're U-turning towards a high profile public figure, not to the leader of the opposition. And the question I have is, is the inherent problem with things like opposition day debates, is they're great for the bit of the opposition's role, which is improving the government, right? The presence of that debate improved this government because children mm. who would otherwise have gone hungry, were. But in terms of advancing a case about this opposition, it didn't do them any good. Marcus Rashford got the credit and lots of people, some of them because they had an axe to grind, but some of them because I think they genuinely did think the Labour Party had had nothing to do with it. And the Labour Party got no credit for it and was mocked for trying to appropriate some of it. And I have a question. Can an opposition day debate ever actually help you as opposed to merely just being a way to improve something the government does?
2: That's a really good question, because obviously the, the Rashford example is a really good one, in which case, you know, an issue actually that the Labour Party has been campaigning on for a long time of holiday hunger. Success on that issue is put down to someone who is outside of politics, isn't linked to the Labour Party and none of the Labour Party's campaigning it gets any particular attention. So it's that tension again, isn't it? The the one that we were talking about in a previous podcast about sort of doing the coronavirus inquiry as we go along, which is should the opposition focus on making policy better as it goes along while it's in while it's in opposition, which it has shown that it successfully can do on certain issues if there's enough you know public buy-in, or should it be looking to Get the wins that will draw attention to it as a successful opposition and a attractive electoral prospect? It's really hard to know. I think with opposition day debates, it's certainly not the latter because they don't get very much attention from journalists either. I've just seen one Conservative MP described it in Parliament as by the time honourable members actually get to an opposition day debate, the gallery is empty and the journalists have all pushed off having written their copy, which I think is actually quite a sort of, uh, apart from the the clips that can go viral on social media of Labour MPs talking about issues that people care about in Parliament, I do think that that idea of them not being always worth all of the time put into them can be fair in in certain cases. And also that means that you don't get the glory for for doing them in in the first place, particularly as they don't often result in anything.
1: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush. And and our brick the new Kellyan, our political correspondent Alvaray. Our music is still Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.